following sermon is made available by Antioch Presbyterian Church, located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. We've noted before that a picture is worth a thousand words. So imagine, girls, that your mother told you to go into the kitchen and bake cookies. And you've never baked cookies before. That'd be a bit of a disaster. You know, what your mother would do is she would first show you how to bake cookies. Or your father tells you to go out and cut the grass or change the oil in the lawnmower. But he never showed you how to do it. He could even tell you. Now you got to unplug this thing and, and, and bottom and let the oil out and everything. No, you need to see it. Um, instructions are okay, but pictures are glorious. Well, you particularly know this when you try to assemble a tool or a toy. And how many of us who've had children have been up until all hours of the morning of Christmas trying to put together a toy and the instructions are written by a Martian? If there weren't pictures, we'd still be there. Now, of course, today we also have uh, YouTube. But what's useful about YouTube is not what the person says. No, it's what the person shows you on YouTube. Pictures are so useful to help us learn anything. And this is certainly true, as we've mentioned in the past, in terms of our pursuit of godliness. And we noted way back in Job chapter 1 that God in Job has given us this picture. He's given us this discreet outline of a true godly person. He's one who is uh, uh, blameless, upright, a God-fearer who turns away from evil. And those are great categories, and we've examined those categories. But uh, in this wisdom literature, what God does uh, through dialogue, but particularly uh, through Job's own example, as he grows in his faith and as he's seeking to vindicate himself against false accusations, uh, we get more and more the picture of what a godly person looks like. Now, that's particularly what happens now in Job chapter 31. Uh, in this final parabolic speech of Job as he has reflected on the past, as he reflects on his immediate suffering and trial. He comes now in chapter 31 uh, to uh, answer these accusations, either implied or directly invented against him, of wickedness and hypocrisy. And he works his way through them. So last week he started with a very basic thing, and that is lust of the flesh. And how he'd taken a vow, made a covenant uh, before God uh, with his eyes not to look upon a woman with lust or uh, any type of fantasy. And he gives us there, as he tells that vow, these three motivations that are very useful in our life. That we can lose our inheritance in God, who is our portion. We can come under God's judgment. And then, in fact, a reminder that we live our eyes under the watchful eyes of God who knows what we see, what we think as well as what we do. Now, the next pattern that Job gives us in verses 5 through 8 actually has to do with his practices as a business person um, because he's been accused of getting his wealth by oppression and deceit. 
Now, you might sit here and wonder, well then, what does this have to do with me? Because really, I don't know that any of us here, well, one person owns his own business, uh, but most of us are not in that position uh, in life. And so maybe this section doesn't have anything to do with us. Well, Job addresses the two essential sins that underlie uh, his defense here of himself as a businessman. And you will see as we go through this that it's the sin of deceit and of covetousness or greed. Now, if I put it that way, although most of us don't own a business, we all have to wrestle with these two things. In fact, I think that deceit and covetousness are two of the base sins of our uh, original sin that comes from Adam. Now, why do I say that? Well, you catechize your children. But which of you ever taught your child to tell a lie? No. They lie by nature, and it's about the first thing they do. Have you ever, uh, when you knew your, your child in a crib, wasn't crying out of any hurt? And so you sneak and you look around the corner and they'll cry and then they look back around. Ah, they're trying to deceive you. Right there, before that you can have a conscious thought, they're deceiving you, wanting to get your attention. Now you've seen that, haven't you? Well, how about children and covetousness? How many times has that six-month-old had a playmate or no playmate, but another six-month-old child, and they're in there, and they're playing with toys. And your child is over here very content until the other child picks up one of her toys across the room. What does she do? She crawls across the room and snatches it back, doesn't she? Because bred in her heart from conception is covetousness. We all have these two basic problems by our very nature that Job is addressing now in verses 5 through 8. So in his life, they come out in terms of his godly business practices. Uh, but for us, the underlying issue really has to do with um, deceit and covetousness. So what I want to show you is that a Christian um, must, with a good conscience, avoid deceit and covetousness in his dealing with his neighbor. We have to love our neighbor as ourselves. A Christian um, with a good conscience, maintaining a good conscience, must avoid deceit and covetousness in his dealings with his neighbor. So we're going to look at two things. We're going to look at this commitment, um, and then we're going to look at the confidence. So the commitment of the Christian, which is to avoid deceit and covetousness, the confidence of the Christian, which is the confidence of a good conscience. So we begin in verse 5, then, with this commitment. But I want to show something to you about the structure of some of the verses here in Job chapter 31. Because I'm taking 5 and 7 together as commitment, and I will show you why. You'll notice that verse 5 begins, if I've walked with falsehood. And verse 7 begins, if my step is turned from my way. Verse 6, then, and verse 8 are what we would call oaths of self-malediction. We talked last week about cutting the animals and walking between them, calling God's wrath upon us. That's what these oaths now are doing. 
So what Job is saying here is, if I have done such and such, then let God do such and such to me. Now he can do that because he has a good conscience. He's not saying he's sinless, but he knows he's walked with integrity, blameless and uprightly, uh, before God. Now we'll come back to that oath, but that's why we look at 5 and 7 then as a twofold commitment. If I've walked with falsehood and my foot has hastened after deceit, if my step has turned from the way, or my heart followed my eyes, or any spot has stuck to my hands. A twofold commitment. One is against deceit, and the second one is against covetousness. So in verse 5, he has a commitment here against deceit. If I've walked with falsehood, literally the word is vanity, but vanity often in the Bible is used for the vanity of deceitfulness, particularly before God and before man. And walk has to do with uh, his conduct. And walk often is used that way in Scripture. Think how often Paul will talk about walk in a manner worthy of those who have been uh, saved by God's grace. Or God's commandment to Abraham in Genesis 17, walk before me and be blameless. So the term walk refers to one's, what the old writers would call conversation, one's manner of life, one's conduct. And Job is saying here that, uh, and we know it's his business practices for two reasons. One is the particular oath he takes in verse 6, which has to do with business practices and then with stealing goods that he gets to in verse 8. So what he's saying here is that I, in my conduct of life, I've, particularly in my business practices, I've not pursued anything deceitfully. Now, he makes it even clearer in the second half, my foot, and that's just a parallel for walking. Our feet are to walk in the paths of God, right, boys and girls? Your feet walk in a certain direction. And so this walking here now is to walk in truthfulness. And he says, my foot uh, has not hastened after deceit. In other words, I have not been hurrying on uh, trying to uh, deceive this person or that person um, in my business dealings. So Solomon uh, then will tell us how um, this uh, can happen in Proverbs 20, verse 14, with respect to driving a bargain uh, that is deceitful. He says, bad, bad, says the buyer, but when he goes away, he boasts. That's deceit, you say. Uh, the buyer is trying to get that thing for um, less than what it's worth it, so he declares it to be uh, not good, when in fact he knows uh, it is, uh, it's quite good. Uh, the seller needs to make a profit, and the buyer needs to uh, have a good product uh, as he pays the seller that profit. Not to do so, then, is deceit. And Solomon, by addressing this in wisdom literature, which is what we have in Job as well, showing this, this is a problem not just in the world. We know it's a problem in the world. Of course, the paradigm of the problem, and I'm sure they get a lot of bad reputation as a used car salesman. But many of them live up to their reputation, as we well know. Uh, so it goes on in the world, but it goes on in the church, Solomon shows us here, right? He's talking to the covenant people. And that's why we read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, because Paul then spells out exactly what was happening uh, in Corinth 
Uh, not only were they having uh, improper lawsuits, but he says you were actually defrauding one another. Actually, then, it's already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud, and you do this even to your brothers and sisters. In the church, deceitfully defrauding one another. And Paul warns then, as we saw, that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And apart from the saving, transforming grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, spelled out in verse 11, all who practice deceit in business dealings are in fact under God's wrath and condemnation and will have no place in the kingdom of heaven. So we see in the bigger picture here a God's hatred of lying. I want to expand a bit on that. God says he's truth and God hates all forms of deceit. God hates lying and God hates the liar who persists in lying. You ever noted in Revelation chapter 21 twice in the two paragraphs that describe those who do not enter into the church, the very last thing that's put there is lying. You know, lying's a treacherous thing. I, I can act towards you wrongly, and at least you will recognize what I'm doing. You know, a shoplifter, well, at least in another day, uh, would have been recognized and punished accordingly. But you see, deceit, we don't know what's going on. Deceit is underhanded. Um, deceit is veiled. And it's all the more treacherous. This is why, boys and girls, look at me. This is why you must be careful because you all tell lies. I've heard a number of you tell lies. And we don't think much about telling lies, do we? It just comes to us naturally, as I've already said. So your mother asks you, did you snatch your sister's book? No, ma'am. Did you eat that cookie? No, ma'am. Of course, there's crumbs all over your face. You see, we lie. And you think, there was a little things. But God hates all lies. And you boys and girls need to understand that because now is when you're going to develop your character. You're going to become a person who is committed to truth even when it hurts you. You're going to be a person that will cover over truth with lies in order to protect yourself. Of course, we as adults also, we know how we wrestle with this issue of lying. Maybe what we call a little white lie. Maybe it's a serious lie to you know, keep us from embarrassment or keep us from some other types of difficulties. But there's two other ways that we lie as, as adults, as Christians. Uh, one is flattery. And in the catechism's definition, uh, exposition of what not to do. Flattery is one of the things. And notice how often again in the Psalms, the psalmist speaks of those who spoke to him uh, with smooth tongues and, and flattery. It's a terrible thing to say something to someone insincerely, either from fear or you want to butter them up, or simply thoughtless. Thoughtless. God hates flattery. The other thing that God hates, and we're probably all more guilty of, is exaggeration of a particular problem or a particular accomplishment or something that was done against us or whatever. When we go beyond the truth, 
truthful description of that thing, we're practicing lying. So you see, we can practice deceit with respect to our neighbor and not simply have business dealings. Well, the second commitment that Job makes is that he is not covetous in his business practices. Verse 7, if my step has turned from the way, or my heart followed my eyes, or any spot has stuck to my hands. Now remember, the if is always going to be fulfilled in the oath in the next verse. So, but here, he begins with this general principle. Uh, again, we've talked about walking and feet. Now we talk about step, singular, a pursuit, of course, of action. Uh, the way, which is another way to talk about the law of God. The way of God is the law of God. So, Job had said earlier, my foot has held fast to his path. I have kept his way and not turned aside. I've not departed from the command of his lips. I've treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. And that parallels the prayer of uh, illumination that I took out of Psalm 119 this morning, the, the second uh, stanza in Psalm 119. So Job's overall commitment in his business dealings was to walk faithfully according to the word of God, which means not to see, it means not to steal. Now how is he going to accomplish this purpose? Well, he gives us two things. My heart followed my eyes and any spot has stuck to my hands. Let me start with the last thing. The spot are the defilement that is stuck to my hands. Hands are put here again for one's acts, particularly now one's acts in obtaining and in getting, in gathering, possessing. And he says that as he has walked according to God's way, that then no spot has stuck to his hands. The hands become defiled when they become then the agents of improper getting gathering those things that are not lawfully ours. And thus, the defilement here has to do with the defilement of sin that I again mentioned earlier, sin defiles. And you'll see this in the sacrificial system. Uh, part of the sacrifices which remove uncleanness. The reason we have ceremonial uncleanness is the Bible teaches us then that we have spiritual uncleanness and we must also have the blood of Christ to cleanse us from that uncleanness. So when we get wrongfully what belongs to others, uh, our hands are stained. They are defiled. And nothing can remove that stain except one thing. Otherwise, we're like uh, Lady Macbeth, who walks around always washing her hands because of the murder. Now, the problem was her conscience. It wasn't her hands, but she could never cleanse her hands. And there's no detergent that's strong enough to cleanse our hands from the defilement of sin. There's only one detergent that can do so, and that's the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Shed, yes, deliver us from guilt, but shed as well daily to deliver us from this defilement of sin. But now take the middle verse, because we see how our hands get defiled, and that is by covetousness. My heart, or my heart, followed my eyes. Now we looked last week at the relationship of the eyes to the heart. The heart is a seedbed of corruption. And the eyes are the active agent of that. Summarized by the Apostle John as lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, 
boastful pride of life. Not here particularly, Job has in mind uh, the lust of the eyes. Because the lust of the eyes is what feeds that covetousness that is within our hearts. That from birth, which we have, that needs to be rooted out. And so we look at something and we are enticed by it. Last week it was a woman or a man. Uh, today it's uh, things or property or the reputation of another. And it is the looking that incites the inward lust of the heart. Think of the case of Achan. And we talked, you know, the pathology of this, we talked about that from uh, James 1, 14 and 15 last week. Each one's tempted when he's carried away, enticed by his own lust. When lust was conceived, it gives birth to sin. When sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So we applied that last week. You see the same thing here now is that you look on this thing, you begin to want it inordinately, and you begin to become discontent. And it maybe doesn't go beyond that, but there's sin, and the sin brings forth death. Or, as Job's talking about this, you see it, you have this inordinate longing for it, and you go after it then in a wrong manner. So that's the pathology that we see in Achan, as he himself describes how his lust and covetousness led to death. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold, 50 shekels in weight, you see he was looking on these things. Then I coveted them. And I took them, and behold, they are concealed inside my tent with the silver underneath it. You see what he confesses? Began with his eyes. His eyes looked on that that they should not have looked on. The eyes then fed the heart with the opening up the greed and covetousness that lies within the heart of each one of us. And he didn't stop there, see. He then took, and we know the story, don't we, boys and girls, what happened to Achan and all his family. God destroyed them because of this covetousness. And so, again, we must beware of this remnant of sin that's yet within us as Christians. This uh, greed and covetousness that makes us discontent with who we are or what we are or what we have. Uh, you boys and girls can complain to your parents, I don't have this, I don't have that, so-and-so's got it, or you wanted something and they said no, and you become unhappy and surly and pouting. No, we must learn to accept the sovereign hand of God in possessions and reputation uh, in all things and plead with Him to put to death this sin within us. Well, that's then the commitment of the godly person, to refrain from deceit and covetousness. Yes, in the big things, but also in our daily activities with our neighbor. It brings us into uh, the confidence of the godly person. And this gets us into the, uh, the then. So we got in verse 5, if I have, verse 6, let him weigh me. Uh, verse 7, if my steps, verse 8, let me now sow and another eat. So in verse 6, he calls upon himself this oath of self-malediction. 
He says, let God be the one then who will weigh and search me. And thus he's saying, in this, God will then judge me. I open myself up to the judgment of God. Now, it's very nice that we, we had a vows taken this morning. We mentioned last week, vows are simply a form of an oath. But we read in the Westminster Confession about oaths in chapter 22. A lawful oath is part of religious worship. Wherein upon just occasion the person swearing solemnly calls God to witness what he asserts or promises to judge him according to the truth or falsehood of what he swears. Whoever takes an oath ought duly to consider the weightiness of so solemn an act and therein to avouch, swear nothing but what is fully persuaded is truth. Neither may any man bind himself by oaths to anything but what is good and just and what he believes so to be, and what he's able and resolved to perform. So an oath, like a vow, a vow is a form of an oath, uh, is an act of religious worship. It's always taken primarily to God, even when we might take it in the context of the church or in a marriage ceremony. We're calling God to witness that which we say here. So uh, we see the witnessing aspect of the oath in what Job says now in verse 6. Let him weigh me with accurate scales and let God know my integrity. So you think of the scales perhaps you've seen in an antique store or maybe you've got one in your kitchen or in a book and you know there's two scales or two, two sides to a weight. And in, in old days, in some places even now, um, proper weights are put on one side and then coins or other goods would put on the other side. And you would know the value of those things if, if you said that uh, uh, these coins are worth uh, uh, $20 and you had $20 of weight on this side, then it would be even. If you said these coins are worth $30 and you had $20 of weight over here, what would happen? The scales would drop on the side of deceit. So Job uses that figure, again, in a business context here to talk about his dealings, but he says, let God put me on his scales. In other words, may God search me. Now, when God searches us, it's not that he learns something about us, it's not that he will either declare something to us about ourselves, or he will vindicate us, as he does say in the case of Abraham, when he offers Isaac. It's interesting, as we sang uh, 26, verse 1, Declare me innocent, O Lord. I walk in blameless ways. I've trusted in the Lord, not wavering all my days. Examine me and prove me. Lord, test my heart and mind, I pray. That's what Job's asking for. In his conscience, he knows he has been an honest and faithful business person. So now he can appeal to God as witness. Let God try him in the scales of perfect justice. You know, he's not saying he's never sinned. He's not saying I never told a lie. He's not saying he didn't covet. But what he is saying is he doesn't practice those things. They don't mark his life. It's not the way in which he walks. It's not the pathway of his foot. And so we must have a good conscience, right? To be able to ask God to search us and weigh us. And I trust you have a good conscience. You keep a good conscience by trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So the writer of the Hebrews says, Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from all, from an evil conscience, that our bodies and our bodies washed with pure water, which I think is our baptism. But Christ takes away the guilt of our sin and gives us a new sincere heart, which we walk then, so that when we sin, we maintain a good conscience by confessing our sin immediately, first to God and then to those either against whom we've sinned or in whose presence we sinned. And in that way, we maintain a good conscience and we can confidently say with Job, we lay ourselves out before God. Can you do that today? If you were accused of some evil, uh, are you able to say, God is my witness? No, I've not done that. Can you pray with David? Search me, O God, and know my heart, and try me, and know my thoughts. See if there is a wicked way in me. Now, now the second oath that he takes in verse 8 is, Let me sow and another eat, and let my crops be uprooted. So now he's getting really to the heart of the matter. He calls upon himself a very serious curse. It's something that Moses picks up on. Uh, in Leviticus, and you see so many, and, and this is why I think Job was written first, but you see so many parallels here. So in the law of God as it's then fleshed out through Moses, but in Leviticus 26.16, I in turn will do this to you. This is God speaking. I will appoint over you a sudden terror, consumption, and fever. This is covenant breakers that will waste away the eyes, cause the soul to pine away. Also, you will sow your seed uselessly, for your enemies will eat it up. That's what Job is saying here. He said, if I have gained anything by oppression, greed, covetous deceit, let another person have my crops. Sow another eat. Crops, which is the word uh, uh, offspring, which is used in Scripture for crops. Now, what's interesting about this, you go back, there's no record that Job lost his crops, is there? He lost his livestock. He lost his workmen. But... Perhaps the wheat was still there. You see how serious he is about this? My last bit of sustenance. I'm so conscious before God. Let another person take it. Let it be uprooted. Let it be destroyed. That is the testimony, friends, of a good conscience. And that is what we seek God to grant to us in these areas then with respect to Deceit and covetous. So as godly people, boys and girls, adults, we are, uh, seek to maintain a good conscience by seeking to avoid deceit, greed, and covetousness in our dealings with our neighbors. And of course, on the one hand, we all, as we listen to this, are indicted, aren't we? I'm reminded I've been forced again to search myself and make confession. I trust you have as well. But I would warn you that if you're not in Christ Jesus today, that everything I've said is only further damnation, further indictment against you. God's testimony this morning against you of where you are. If you remain in your sins apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, you must flee to him to be forgiven of the guilt and be cleansed from the stain. But let me wrap it up with giving you a few, you're not business people for the most part, but how, how do we as everyday Christians defraud? 
I want you to weigh these things. First, I want to speak to you men who are in seminary and will be or are ministers. Um, I find that ministers uh, uh, defraud in a couple of ways. One is, and, and seminary students, perhaps even more guilty, is that you go to somebody with a prayer request, and that's a good thing to do. But you actually go into a wealthy person with a prayer request, and your real hope is that the prayer will be answered because that person will be inclined to give something to you. That is deceitful, and that is fraudulent. Or, um, in the South, in particular, for the longest time, ministers got discounts. Uh, and that's fine if people want to do that, but it's not something you should be seeking. I'm a minister expecting, well, because you're a minister, I'm going to give you 10 or 20% off. Uh, then you're defrauding that person. If they want to do that of their own will, that's very different, isn't it? Or perhaps as an employee, you're a clock watcher or a person watcher, which Paul warns against both in Ephesians and in Colossians. And you work well when you're being observed, and you look well if somebody is watching over your shoulder. Uh, are you looking at the clock and I can't wait to get out of this place? You're defrauding. Or, you're using work time to witness. Oh, that's such a holy exercise. But your employer's not paying you to witness. Are you playing on the computer on his time? He's not paying you to play on the computer in his time. Or those of you that would be involved in employment, then are you giving your employees uh, an honest wage and safe working conditions? And how about those daily sneaky things such as Income tax returns. So easy to fudge a little bit here and there, isn't it? Because just a little bit, they're not going to check up on you. Or to fudge an expense report uh, because you can get more money that way. Or you're trying to sell your car and you withhold from the buyer a defect of which you're well aware. Or you dented somebody's car in a parking lot and nobody saw it. Did you go away? I just put a note on the other person's car with your name and your phone number. These are a few practical things to help jog us in the way that we can conduct ourselves as godly people in all of our business dealings. We all sin. We come back to the Lord Jesus Christ for pardon, for cleansing, and for power. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.